Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, March 7th of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And today we're gathering at 6.30 a.m. Eastern, and for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, 5.30 a.m. Central Time. This Sunday is March 12th, and we're working carefully to be faithful to year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share and question and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson from Tampa. Charles Willard. That's right. Just as who I am. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, everybody. Nice to have you with us today. Uh, today, the scripture is from John 4, John 4, 5 through 42. We're going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and uh, it's a lengthy passage, but a beloved passage. And so we've divided up the reading among the team, uh, and I'll kick it off. So it's John 4, 5 through 42. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flock drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to come, have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to me, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. 
They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, which is, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly I have BB, <laughs> so let me correct that. Um, this is truly, apparently I didn't copy that part of the text. That's all right. I'll do that last verse. They Thank you. The woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. And that's the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks be to God. You. And, uh, you know, for long passages like this, nothing beats allocation of work. And, uh, there are lots of ways to do it in terms of reading. So nice job, everybody. Uh, I think this may be the longest passage in the three-year cycle that we read as a family uh, in lectionary. Well, let's get to the question. Uh, and uh, the first one, Sarah, I'm going to send to you. And then, Charles, you'll go second. And then, uh, Bill, you'll go third. So for the first question, uh, Sarah, Bill, uh, Sarah, Charles, and then Bill. Uh, here's the question. How does the Samaritan woman change or impact your reading of the Gospels? Or another way to put it would be, what would the Gospel of John be without her? Sarah? I think that it's important, and I'm going to let Charles speak to the data that I'm, I'm thinking, and he'll, he'll share it too. Um, she becomes the first to name him Savior. 
she her statement of faith is, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I think that's an essential, um, I'm going to call it a keystone of this particular passage. Because here we are being presented with a person outside of Jerusalem who is considered an outsider on multiple levels, and yet she's faithfully holding fast to the idea that a Messiah is coming. And and her proclamation of this is what gives Jesus the entree to come even further and, and, and interact with her. Um, Reverend Ken Hubble asked us to consider this week in his preaching uh, what we studied last week, which is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And he asked us to consider what Nicodemus was experiencing, thinking about or asking And like that conversation, this week's reading shares another conversation. I think these are, as as you pointed out, Don, um, John Debevoise calls them photographs worthy of the album and not being left in the box with the rest of the photographs. We've taken these two photographs, one of Nicodemus and Jesus, and now we have a photograph of the woman at the well with Jesus. And, and I think that John is right, John Debevoise is right, that we lift up these two moments of conversation as family photos, that we see ourselves in these conversations with Jesus. And Kenny asked us to think about what Nicodemus is experiencing, thinking about, and asking. Um, and I think this conversation does the same thing. Um, I think that this leads to us asking more questions, us having more opportunities to consider what does a faith walk look like? How do we practice the the growing of our faith? And it makes me think, what do the, what does Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman have in common? What might we learn from each of them because of the conversations they've had with Jesus? And what might we learn by thinking of them as examples of faithful following? Thank you. Charles, Willard, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> I wanted to share one uh, one statement that Barbara Brown Taylor made about uh, this particular event here. Uh, I have turned to her for my reading uh, my nighttime reading, uh, and so it wasn't surprising that I had found this particular ar- article. But this, this is an article, uh, not not was not not in this latest set of readings that I've done. So what does she say about this particular passage? Jesus talks longer to the woman at the well than he does to anyone else in all the Gospels. Longer than he talks to any of his disciples longer than he talks to any of his accusers, longer than he talks to any of his own family. She is the first person he reveals himself to in the Gospel of John. She is the first outsider to guess who he is and tell others. She is the first evangelist, John tells us, and her testimony brings many to faith. Triple outsider. In the first place, she was a Samaritan, which must have made her a half-breed and a full pagan as far as the poorest were concerned. She was also, of course, a woman. In Jesus' time, women were not what you would call liberated. They were not even allowed to worship with men. Whose morning devotions included the prayer, Thank God I am not a woman. 
women had no place in public life. They were not to be seen or heard, especially not by holy men who did not speak to their own wives in public. So, and she was a Samaritan. Thanks, Charles. Bill Hall? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I think what I will share uh, will build on what Sarah and Charles have shared. Your question is, how does the Samaritan woman change or impact your reading of the Gospels and what would the Gospel of John be without her? I think I'm right. Only John tells his story. Uh, I forgot to check if there were parallels. Um, I believe this is unique to John. If that's accurate, then we really not know. Uh, Often in the synoptics, um, there's another version of the same story. Um, Sarah referenced uh, a male resource, Kenny, uh, Charles Barbara Brown, Taylor Woman. I was particularly influenced in my study this week by another woman scholar, Caroline Lewis, who teaches uh, Bible at Luther Seminary. And as is, I think, typical of her and why I resonate often with her and her commentary on this, uh, the Gospel of John, which is her specialty. She emphasizes that it is a conversation. <laughs> and depending on how you define doctrine, Jesus is not indoctrinating her teaching theological doctrine. He's engaging with her. And Caroline notes how important dialogue is for the faith journey. That's what this podcast is about, what we intend. Not thus say of the Lord, we've got it figured out. But here are four people on Tuesday morning who engage in a dialogue, hopefully encouraging others within themselves and among others in Bible study or wherever to engage in conversation. It, we, we can take it for granted, but the life of faith is about searching and questioning and doubting and um, dealing with with a hard question. So uh, one thing we would be without, uh, Don, would be a powerful example of real faith conversation. Uh, we would be poor for it. And, again, John uses the technique, if you want to call it that, of confusion. (laughs) And I stress that because the more I have grown in my faith, the less comfortable I feel being in conversation where someone has it all figured out. I find it much more growing of my faith to hear people ask questions. And one of and you don't have to be a minister for this to happen, but frequently in my ministry, someone either informally or formally with an appointment would raise questions, doubts. Um, and God honors that kind of actual engagement. So there's much more we could say, but um, 
I, I just lift up the value of real conversation and dialogue. Thank you. I made a little list for mine, and one would be if it's not present, we cut this out of the scripture, in the fullness of scripture, one person who's completely understood, completely, is missing. The second is there are no counterpoints to what we're discussing here. There are no counterpoints, the counter-truths to the Nicodemus story at all, which makes me wonder as John was being assembled, the book, the author's putting it together, I, from where I'm standing, say, oh, she's an additive to Nicodemus. I'll flip that around and go, he, she's the one that's been pulled out to talk about, and he decides to add Nicodemus as a counterpoint. What, what if the first draft says she's there, and we need Nicodemus to round it out? Like, you know, why, why do I think that way? <laughs> so, yeah, just because it comes first, just because it looks linear. So that's another. Uh, I think uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And, of course, the woman, also a seeker. Last week I highlighted John Debevoise, who's the senior pastor at uh, Palmasia Presbyterian Church, that said, well, maybe Nicodemus is the patron saint of seekers. Well, maybe she is. Maybe she is. Or both seekers. He seeks out Jesus, and then Jesus seeks out her. Is there a better? Is there a better way? No, Jesus is listening and seeking at the same time. Uh, it's kind of like, well, I only go to the beach at high tide. Why? Because the fish are closer and I like high tide. Well, what about low tide? There's chills to gather. So Jesus is the God of high and low tides. Uh, and, and finally, icebreakers. Uh, in this book, the icebreakers are everywhere. And I, and I, I, I mean, I'm using 20th, 21st century language about being an icebreaker, but you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, one of the first words said. Every word, every nuance, give me a drink of water. Everything is an opening. It moves and bobs and weaves. And so I think John is the gospel of icebreakers, and there's the Christ doing it. Uh, I think, uh, and what makes all that possible is John's one, in my reading, John is one big conversation, all made up of all these people who are having inner dialogues with themselves. And Christ intervenes. Sometimes you go to Christ and go, I'm having an inner dialogue. Here we go. And in other cases, Jesus already knows the other person fully. So let's, uh, let's get to the second question. And Bill, oh, I'm going to send this your way. Uh, there's an echo of the past in this that's dominant, at least in my reading throughout the passage. Why, why is the echo of the past, Jacob, dominant in this passage? Again, uh, a good question. By the way, while you were speaking, Don, I checked and confirmed this story is unique to John. So had John not recorded it, we would not have this at all. And one other quick comment, it struck me listening and thinking about what the other three said, that there's an interesting juxtaposing. Chapter 3 is a conversation at night in private with a high and mighty <laughs> Chapter 4 is a public conversation that gets known in the whole village with um, the most marginal person probably in that village. Um, Mid at midday. Yeah, right, right, making it even more public, Sarah. Thank you. Right. Uh, I don't think that contrast is accidental. <laughs> what, whether or not John intended that, we don't know. To your question, um, 
I did some research, not as much as I wished, and Jacob's well was the betrothal scene in the Old Testament with Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, <laughs> we probably cannot overemphasize the importance of the location here. I, I wish I knew even more about that, and maybe some of one of my colleagues can enrich that even more. So I think that's important, Don, that um, this is a very significant place. It also represents an intersection with tension. We probably, us and all our listeners, know that Samaritans were not full-blooded Jews. Uh, They had, as I remember it, occurred after the, during the exile in the Old Testament and intermarrying with people of the land. So they were, whatever the right word is, racially, culturally, uh, <clears throat> Jewish in part, but not fully. And so there was that. They they shared uh, history. They shared the importance of that location, yet there was great tension and uh, conflict between them. Um, and interestingly, the, the lectionary leaves out the first four verses of this chapter where it says that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making baptizing more disciples than John, um, he started back to Galilee, and the New Revised Standard Version said, but he had to go through Samaria. Caroline Lewis and some other biblical scholars remind us it's possible legitimately to translate that as it was necessary for him to go through through Samaria. Interesting shading of meaning that it wasn't just accidental, but that there there may have been a purpose. Um, And it reminds us that conflict is always present uh, in Jesus's ministry. Um, I said that the Samaritans and Jews shared in common. The scriptures were another point of conflict. According to scholars, the Samaritans saw the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, as their scripture. Other Jews had a more expansive and inclusive a number of books. Um, and this incident, to me, Don, reflects that centuries of mistrust and hostility between those who shared a common ancestry is particularly challenging and difficult. Um, it, religion, geography, race, gender, life circumstances, is is all caught up in this a conversation that in, occurs at a historic landmark. And I'll finish with that, Don. Thank you. Coming to you next, Sarah, but I just wanted to build on, Bill, uh, what you were talking about, that uh, you know, ownership and loyalty are all over this. Uh, I don't know about you. I can take ownership over anything my story, my point of view, my religion. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to do 
and here it is, just as current today as it ever was. And uh, it, so the ownership of the loyalty, you know, I'm attracted to that connecting people, but it divides us just as much as it connects us. And I think it's a reminder that even a shared story or a shared legacy has a point of view that I own or you own. Like, well, I want to tell you about Don as he grew up and what happened to him. Who are you to tell my story? That's mine. Let me tell you about Don when he was going to church. No, you're no, you're not. That's mine. You can't tell that. You're going to get it wrong. It's my point of view. I think mm-hmm. it's so personal in that in that way. Uh, so I'm wondering how far this discussion is from uh, the court of law about ownership of property. That isn't what Jesus is there to do. But I, I think you know, all through the Gospel of John, we've got people only giving testimony to what they think belongs to them legacy, history, family, and they're trying to give testimony to Jesus. Mine, separate, make this, make this mine, make this, tell them what's right. Like there's some court of equity going on here, but it's, uh, the story reminds me that my, my position on this is Christ's work is, is not about reconciling ownership for humans of anything. He's not there to do that. That's not the court that he's holding at all. Well, Sarah, what do you think? What do you think about the the dominance of this history in this story. Well, first I'm going to open with Reverend Bert Tuggle would say, the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. So ownership becomes a moot point in any court. But um, I agree that with Bill that this is an important intersection. And I think that's the interesting gift of this well. This well stands in between, to quote Rolf Jacobson and his Dear Working Preacher blog this week, a recognition of a shared history between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. Jacob is seen as the giver of wells, of water, and water is a huge symbol in the book of John, um, a symbol uh, for a foretaste of heaven, of baptism, of renewal, of life-giving. Um, a well is an oasis of sorts, uh, what is considered a meeting place for dialogue and new beginnings. Historically, and thank you so much, Bill, for pointing this out, is a meeting place where those who would become married would find their betrothed. And you lifted up Moses finds Zipporah. We we know that uh, Jacob finds Rebecca, no, Rachel. And we know that um, the servant of Abraham goes hunting for a wife for Isaac, and he finds Rebecca. So there's some interesting frames around this well that anybody talking about it would think about or consider. Um, that This is a place in between Jews and Samaritans and a place in between towns and wilderness, a place in between infidelity and fidelity. We find this woman who has been married five times and is now with someone who is not her husband. Uh, Footnote here that women weren't allowed to divorce, but men could. And it was likely she was divorced because she was barren. So it becomes problematic in that she's been, if you will, a victim of infidelity throughout her whole life, and she meets Jesus who presents her with a fidelity like no other. And so this is a moment between 
despair, and joy. And I think that's an interesting thing for a well to be. A wellspring of joy. There's a whole lot of language, you know, woven into this uh, for us to visit if we so desire. An oasis, a wellspring of joy, um, like streams in the desert, so to speak. So that's what I see about this echo of Jacob in this story. Thank you, Sarah. Charles Willard, your thoughts? Oh, I have nothing to contribute here. I'm sorry. All right. Thank you. Well, let's go to the final question. And uh, let's look at uh, verses 34 and 35 of today's reading. Uh, they are strange, at least to me, strange and confusing. Uh, they, this is about the food, the food of the Christ. And I'm wondering, how do you interpret the food of the Christ in the context of this passage in John? Or, or why does the author choose to include those parts? related to the food. And uh, uh, Sarah, I'm going to come to you uh, first. And I I was struggling. I, I raised it because I struggle with it. Uh, so uh, instead of having the answers, I, I just make a few observations that, you know, we think about the fruits in this, in this gospel about uh, the fruits of labor, uh, fruit, the fruits of the spirit. And I think that one's a little bit not really in the position here. Uh, I think there's the the food that makes labor possible. I think that's closer in terms of what's feeding the Christ. Uh, I think there's food that we use when we talk about our vocation, uh, kind of um, your career feeds you, it moves you forward. Uh, I think there's something there. And then there's the basic nourishment and I think that's the one that hits the best which is maybe Sarah a lot closer to music being the food of love and Twelfth Night 1500 years later than this passage but if music be the food of love play on uh, the food of love I think that might work uh, and then the enrichment the enrichment of being fed by your work which I, I think resonates in the 21st century um, uh, I am re- I'm enriched by what I do. I'm enriched by my career. I'm enriched by my daily tasks, that there's a connection between what I'm called to do and what I'm doing. That, that wonderful, if you've had the pleasure of that moment or those days, that there's something there at, at, the, highest, at the highest level in terms of the work of, of, of uh, Christ. And the final thing that I, I put on my list was that I think there's a whole study you could do that it is a counterpoint on it is a counterpoint or a response to uh, paganism and the darkness uh, because you do feed the gods at that time. You have food for the pagan gods. You placate them. There are rituals. There's food for idols all through scripture. And, of course, they're recalling old scripture where there's food. This is different. This is a counterpoint. So, I'm, as I'm struggling with this, that's the list I came up with, but I, I raised it so I could learn from my friends on this podcast, starting with you, Sarah. Have you ever had a conversation that you walked away from with so much energy and so much enthusiasm, and you just kind of left the conversation smiling and, and thinking, I'm going to be buoyed by that moment or that interaction for days? 
um, I'm thinking of the road to Emmaus and the couple walking. And then at the very end of the conversation, Jesus reveals himself. And this couple dashes back to Jerusalem, the path they've just walked, to share with enthusiasm the conversation that they had with Jesus. And I think, for me, this is that kind of conversation. And I'm wondering if that conversation that Jesus has with this woman is so enthralling, so energizing, that eating seems like something diminished, that that it was such a, a, a gift of, of energy and, and joy that Jesus finds himself fulfilled by that. Um, that this exchange offers a glimpse of first disclosure, first fulfillment of purpose and hope. And the hope and joy expressed by this woman becomes the food for the Savior and food for thought. Thank you, Sarah. Charles Willard, your thoughts on the food of the Christ? No. Thank you. Bill Hall, what do you think? Uh, from my backpacking days, I remember on occasions coming down a mountain seeing little tiny droplets of water and finally becoming a little, a larger trickle. And when you get down to the bottom of the mountain, it all flows into one stream. So I'd like to think that what we do here is like that. <laughs> You're different. Uh, if I may say, trickles of water <laughs> that hopefully flow together. And I think what I'm about to share, Sarah, joins your stream uh, well. Um, I find it helpful, Don, in thinking about your question. To remember earlier in this passage, we, are, we encounter yet another example of John having Jesus take the conversation somewhere else. Verse 34, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He immediately <laughs> zings the uh, conversation in another direction. And he goes on to say in verse 34, Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. So we're being, to your point, Sarah, about joy, because at the end of this passage, the woman is joyous, and I'll come to that in a moment. You're, you're, I think you're right on, Sarah, that Jesus is offering an understanding of food that's nourishing in a whole other way that leads to a sense of purpose uh, and completeness. Then in John 6, Two chapters from now is the feeding of the 5,000. And um, Jesus says to the people uh, who pursue him and finally find him again, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then in chapter 6, there are four times that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of God, the bread of life, um, the bread that came down from heaven. Um, now, how does that bread nourish us? Ian McFarlane is a professor of theology 
at Emory University Chandler School of Theology. And in the Christian Century article in 2019, September, he says, this story of the dialogue with a Samaritan woman and others in the New Testament illustrate that Jesus knew others in such a way that they became known to themselves. And I think that gets at your point, Sarah. What leads to true joy is coming to know yourself as you are, warts and all. To me, it is amazing that this woman's testimony is, now mind you, she was not only likely an outcast of Jews, she was an outcast probably in her own village. Some scholars think that her coming at noon was when respectable women didn't come. Anyway, she says, he told me everything I have ever done. Think about that. It it reminds me of the recovery movement. When you tell the truth, when you come to know yourself as you are, it's liberating. And again, if you're in recovery, you admit you're addicted to whatever it is that you, to which you are addicted. Um, so that's a meandering <laughs> set of streams, Don, but I think uh, this is at the heart of this, that God in Christ nourishes us to know ourselves as we really are and to overcome what we were talking about in question one, that it's not about that my place is better than yours or my theology is better than yours. As you reminded us, Sarah, as the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including all people. Thank you for the question, Don. Thank you. And uh, looking forward to hearing from folks that listen into the podcast of how how you're approaching this passage this week. And uh, for those listening in, Palmacy of Presbyterian Church, it makes this podcast possible, uh, is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend the site to you for other discussions of Scripture, differences of opinion, prayers, outstanding sermons, music, meditations, the opportunity to take communion, and many others. Check that out. You're all welcome, and we'll see you next time.